Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is day 57. Today we will be reading book 13, chapters 19 through 22 in the Ascension edition of the book. We wanted to take this opportunity to thank everyone who has helped support this podcast financially. Your support is so appreciated and helps us to reach as many people as possible. And if you haven't already, please consider supporting us at ascensionpress.com support. Before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we are covering today. So moving through Genesis still with St. Augustine and the creation accounts, uh, he begins to show us how it is that creation and the church and the sacraments all work together and are intertwined. By grace and conversion, he points out that we men and women created in the image and likeness of God are to become the lights of the firmament that is similar to becoming um, the light of the world, as our Lord says in the Gospel of Matthew. And in considering what Genesis 1.20 and 1.24 have to say about creation and the creation of reptiles and birds, St. Augustine sees how it is that baptism and the Holy Eucharist are intertwined into creation. So, Let's get started with the prayer, and then we could head to the readings. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapter 19. But first, wash yourself and be clean. Put away evil from your souls and from before my eyes, so that the dry land might appear. Learn to do good. Render judgment for the fatherless and plead for the widow, so the earth may bring forth green grass for the cattle and trees bearing fruit. And come, let us speak together, says the Lord, so that there may be lights in the firmament of the heaven shining upon the earth. That rich young man asked the good master what he must do to attain eternal life. Let the good master, whom he thought to be no more than a man, though in fact he was good because he is God, let the master tell him if he wishes to enter into life, he must keep the commandments. He must put away the bitterness of malice and wickedness. He must not kill, nor commit adultery, nor steal, nor bear false witness, so that the dry land may appear. And he must bring forth honor for father and mother and love for his neighbor. And the young man told the master, all these have I kept. But where then have all these thorns come from, if the earth is so fruitful? Go root up the woody thickets of covetousness. Sell what you have and be filled with fruit by giving to the poor. Then you shall have treasure in heaven. And if you wish to be perfect, follow the Lord alongside those among whom he speaks wisdom, who know what to distribute to the day and what to the night, so that you might also know this and may yourself have lights in the firmament of heaven." But if this is to be so, then your heart must be there, and it will only be there if that is where you have placed your treasure, as you have heard from the good master. But that barren earth which the thorns choked was filled with sorrow at these words. 
But you, a chosen generation, you weak things of the world, you who have forsaken all so that you may follow the Lord, go after him and confound the mighty. Go after him, you beautiful feet, and shine in the firmament, so that the heavens may declare his glory, dividing between the light of the perfect, though they are not as the angels are, and the darkness of the little ones, though not hopeless. Shine upon the earth, and let the day and the light of the sun utter unto day words of wisdom. And may the night in the moonlight announce unto the night the word of knowledge. The moon and stars shine for the night, but the night does not shroud them, for they give it the light that it has. Behold God saying, as it were, let there be lights in the firmament of heaven. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven, like the rushing of a mighty wind, and parted tongues like fire appeared, sitting upon each of them. And lights were fashioned in the firmament of heaven, having the word of life. Blaze forth everywhere, you holy fires, you beautiful fires, for you are the light of the world and are not set under a bushel basket. He to whom you cling has been exalted and has himself exalted you. Run forth and make it known to all the nations. Chapter 20. Let the sea also conceive and bring forth your works, and let the waters bring forth living creatures that crawl about. For separating the precious from the vile, you are made the mouth of God, by whom he says, let the waters bring forth not the living soul that comes forth from the earth, but the living creatures that crawl about, and the birds that fly above the earth. For your sacraments, O God, by the ministry of your holy ones, have moved amid the waves of the world's temptations to drench the Gentiles in your name through your baptism. And amid all of this, many great marvels were wrought, like great whales and the voices of your messengers flying above the earth, in the open firmament of your book, which was set over them as their authority, under which they were to fly wherever they would go. Indeed, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard when their sound goes forth through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. For by your blessing, you, O Lord, have multiplied them. Do I speak falsehood, or do I mingle and mix things together, failing to distinguish between clear knowledge of these things in the firmament of heaven, and the bodily works in the flowing waters of the sea and under the firmament of heaven? For even in those things that we can know substantially, and in a well-defined way, without any increase over the course of generations, like lights of wisdom and knowledge, even they have many varied material actions. And as one grows from another, they are multiplied by your blessing, O God, who have given comfort to our mortal senses need for many details by enabling us to use various bodily movements to set forth and express that which our mind understands to be one thing. The waters have brought these forth, though in your word. The needs of those people who have been estranged from the eternity of your truth have brought them forth, though in your gospel. For the waters bitterly diseased themselves cast them forth in your word. Now all that you have made is beautiful, yet behold, you who fashioned them all are inexpressibly more beautiful still. And if Adam had not fallen away from you, there never would have flown forth from his depths, as though from a womb, the salty brackishness of the sea, that is, the human race, so profoundly inquisitive, temptuous with waves and restlessly flowing. And in the midst of such great and varied waters, there would have been no need for those who dispense your goods to perform and speak mysterious deeds and sayings in a way that is bodily and able to be experienced through the senses. For this is what I think those creatures moving about on the earth and those flying birds are. Thus, those who are being initiated and consecrated by bodily sacraments would not make further progress unless their soul had a spiritual life, and after speaking the word of admission, then they could look forward to perfection. Chapter 21 Therefore, in your word, 
It is not the depths of the sea, but the earth, now separated from the bitterness of the waters, that brings forth not the creatures that crawl about with living souls and flying birds, but rather the living soul. For now it has no more need for baptism, as the heathens do, and as it, too, needed, when it was covered by the waters. For there is no other entrance into the kingdom of heaven, since you have appointed that this should be the entrance. Nor does it seek after marvelous miracles to bring about faith. For now that the faithful earth has separated from the waters of infidelity, it no longer awaits signs and wonders to provide a foundation for its belief. And tongues are a sign not for those who believe, but for those who do not. Nor does the earth that you have founded upon the waters need those flying birds that the waters brought forth at your word. Send forth your word into it by your messengers. For we speak about their deeds, but you are the one who works in them so that they may bring forth a living soul. The earth brings it forth because the earth is the cause by which they bring this about in the soul, just as the sea was the cause by which are brought about the creatures that crawl with life and the birds that fly under the firmament of heaven. The earth has no need of these, though it feeds upon the fish that was raised from the depths and is now set upon the table that you have prepared in the sight of those who believe. Indeed, he was raised from the depths so that he might nourish the dry land, and the birds, the offspring of the sea, nonetheless multiply upon the earth. For man's infidelity was the cause of the first preaching of the evangelists. Yes, the faithful are also exhorted and blessed by them many times over from day to day. But the living soul takes its beginning from the earth, for only those who are already numbered among the faithful draw profit by restraining themselves from the love of this world, so that their soul, which was dead while it lived in pleasures, may live for you. Yes, these were death-bringing pleasures, Lord, for you, Lord, are the life-giving delights of pure hearts. Therefore, let your ministers work upon the earth, not as upon the waters of infidelity by preaching and speaking through miracles and sacraments and mystical words, where ignorance, the mother of admiration, might be intent upon them out of fear felt towards those secret signs. For such is the entrance into faith for the sons of Adam, who are forgetful of you while they hide themselves from your face and become a dark depth. But let your ministers work now as on dry land, separated from the whirlpools of the great depths, and let them be a pattern for the faith while living before them and arousing them to imitate them. For men hear not for the sake of hearing, but also for the sake of doing. Seek the Lord, and your soul shall live, so that the earth may bring forth the living soul. Be not conformed to the world. Restrain yourselves from it, for the soul lives by avoiding that which kills it through desire. Restrain yourselves from the fearful savagery of pride, the sluggish pleasures of luxury, and the false name of knowledge, so that the wild beasts may be tamed, the cattle subdued, and the serpents made harmless. Allegorically, these are the movements of our soul. That is, the haughtiness of pride, the delight of lust, and the poison of curiosity are the motions of a dead soul. Yes, when the soul dies, it does not lose all its motion, for it dies by forsaking the fountain of life, and thus is taken up by this transitory world and conformed to it. But your word, O God, is the fountain of eternal life, which does not pass away. Thus this departure of the soul is restrained by your word when we hear it said, Do not be conformed to this world, so that the earth may, in the fountain of life, bring forth a living soul, that is, a soul made continent in your word, by your evangelists, by imitating those who imitate your Christ. For this is what is meant by being according to its kind, for a man imitates his friend. Be as I am, he says, for I too am like you. 
Thus, in this living soul, there shall be good beasts, meek in their action. For you have commanded, go on your busyness and meekness, so that you shall be beloved by all men. And so too there will be good cattle, which will neither have excess when they eat, nor lack any when they do not. And so too good serpents, not dangerous and harmful ones, but rather ones that are wise and heedful, only searching into temporal nature as much as suffices for eternity to be clearly perceived in the things that have been made. For these animals obey reason when they are restrained from taking a deadly course, and thus they live and are good. Chapter 22 For behold, O Lord, our God, our Creator, when our affections have been restrained from the love of this world by which we died through our evil living, and we have begun to be a living soul by living in the good, finding fulfilled within ourselves that word which you spoke through your apostle, do not be conformed to this world, then there follows what you said immediately thereafter, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. But this is not after one's kind, as though one were following his neighbor who came before him, nor as though he were now following the example of some better man, for you did not say, let man be made after his kind, but rather, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, that we might prove what your will is, and lest those whom he had begotten as children in the gospel might forever remain infants, needing to be fed upon milk and protected by his nursing care, he who dispensed your word said, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Thus you do not say, let man be made, but rather let us make man. Nor do you say according to his kind, but rather after our image and likeness. For when man is renewed in his mind and beholds and understands your truth, he does not need another man to indicate the way for him, so that he might follow after his kind. Rather, by your direction, he gives his assent to what is your good, acceptable, and perfect will. Yes, now that he is ready and able, you teach him how to discern the trinity of the unity and the unity of the trinity. Thus, to what you said in the plural, let us make man, there is immediately connected in the singular, so God created man. And after the plural words, after our likeness, we see the words, in the image of God. And so man is renewed in the knowledge of God after the image of him who created him. And now being made spiritual, he judges all things among those that are to be judged. Yet he himself is judged by no man. All right, well, here we are, chapter 19 in book 13. And chapter 19, the first of our, from our readings today, gives us, or St. Augustine gives us a sort of summary of conversion. Um, He talks about how it is that we need to um, first be made clean and put all sin away, not just as a sort of external kind of reality, but I I was going to say as an internal reality that doesn't sound as profound, but, you know, conversion pertains not just to a sort of facade, but to the entirety of who we are, our hearts, our minds are also part of being converted. And then he says, moved by grace, we are to shine, to be holy fires, he says, to be the light of the world. So it's not anything new that he's proposing. I guess as we're ending, getting towards the end of the book, we're getting a lot of or of his confessions, we're getting a lot of summaries. And I mean, the whole thing has been the story of his conversion, but here we have it in a sort of synopsis form, which is good for us to hear, good for us to sort of have in a, I don't know, like an elevator pitch of what it means to be converted and the goal of conversion. So I don't know if this inspires you, Father Gregory, or not, but yeah, this is where we're starting because this is where St. Augustine starts. So thoughts on thoughts on this sort of 
kind of introductory kind of pause in the commentary on Genesis, but sets us up for what's coming to talk about the sacraments too. Yeah, I think we, we've mentioned to this point how St. Augustine is enshrined in the Catholic tradition as an especially good teacher of the doctrine of grace, for which reason he is sometimes called the doctor of grace. And he is able to communicate in ways that kind of speak to our human experience or that correspond with what we ourselves have lived, and yet get to the heart of the theological mystery without, of course, exhausting it or explaining it away. Um, and, and I think, especially, you know, having been through this in his own life, he knows, you know, the depths of human weakness and woundedness and the paralysis that comes with that. And so when he's thinking about grace, he's thinking about it in terms of the new life that it imparts, but also the motion that it introduces into the human life, because otherwise, how are we going to progress? Um, I think often of a line, you know, from the Psalms, like, who will deliver me from this body of death? This sense that left to our own devices, says the Catechism of the Council of Trent, we, we can lay claim really to sin and falsity, and that's, that's about it. St. Thomas Aquinas has some things to say which are a little less devastating. He's like, well, we can, we can make roads and we can plant vineyards, but when it comes to the supernatural order, we can't do much that really matters matters. We can't build mansions in heaven, as it were, or store up treasures in heaven. So for St. Augustine to kind of reorient the conversation here in terms of the life of grace is a, a helpful reminder because it always brings before our eyes what matters most um, and what makes sense of everything else. And especially his kind of a, uh, yeah, a little pause and the kind of setup for his continued commentary on Genesis. But if you remember at the beginning of our of each book, St. Augustine has these prayers of praise, of thanksgiving, of being grateful for our Lord's mercy and our Lord's constancy in his life. And a reminder here, as Father Gregory was saying, that, you know, but for the grace of God, we can't do anything that redounds to heaven or to our salvation redemption. We can see why, as St. Augustine makes this sort of, this particular confession in his confessions, why his prayers throughout make so much sense, you know, to give praise and thanks to God for for the graces that he's received. So, yeah, but it also sets us up. I don't think it's accidental in St. Augustine's writings, but it sets us up for his commentary in the coming sections of the book of Genesis. So we're going to look at um, today at Genesis 120 and 124 in particular. Um, but just a word about the the sort of commentary that we're going to get in the next few days as we head towards the end of book 13 is in the reading, he, he comments on the text, but then also draws sort of the allegory of, we had this with the church, but also now with the sacrament. So he's going to comment on the different days and pieces of creation, but how those relate to us in sort of the here and now. So it might seem a little, I don't know, esoteric or difficult in reading it, but there's a sort of, he is making a sort of practical application of how from the, the first moments of creation, our Lord continues to move now, you know, through the sacraments, through his giving of grace. So keep that in mind. So Genesis 1.20 recounts the creation of the waters and living things coming forth from the waters. And of course, we have the literal account of things being created, you know, the waters and living things coming from the waters. But St. Augustine also sees here uh, the life of baptism coming forth from the waters, from living things coming from the waters. So yeah, I don't. I, do you see this as a stretch, Father Gregory? Do you see this as a piece? What What are your thoughts on relating baptism to the creation of waters and the living things coming forth from the waters? 
Yeah, we've made mention previously to the different senses of scripture, and if you search your catechism, you'll find a nice little rhyming Latin couplet which speaks to the four sentences. Uh, I think that couplet comes from a, a Carthusian in the late Middle Ages. And what we have here is the literal sense and then the allegorical sense, which is to kind of be on the lookout for how Christ is spoken of in the Old Testament. And then the tropological sense, or sometimes called the moral sense, which is how what you know what's described in sacred scripture informs our lives as as Christians, but but specifically in the sense of how we live and how we um, you know like abide by the rules or not. And then uh, the fourth and final is the anagogical sense, complicated word, simple understanding, namely how this pertains to the end times of the last things. And so when St. Augustine reads sacred scripture, he, he works within this understanding that all the words of sacred scripture have a literal sense. And we try to get at that by, you know, honing our uh, historical critical tools. But each is also the source of further senses because God doesn't uh, just breathe into the sacred scriptures or just doesn't breathe simply into the words, but also into the very events themselves because he's provident, because he orchestrates all things strongly and sweetly such that they return to him uh, or unto the praise of his glory. And so St. Augustine has this kind of confidence uh, that we kind of as a Western people uh, lack somewhat <laughs> since like the 17th and 18th century, uh, but that we can recover. And I think an excellent example of somebody who recovers this Augustinian confidence would be like Pope Benedict XVI um, in his Jesus of Nazareth books. So he's he's engaged with what contemporary scholars are saying, and he takes that seriously. But he also permits the text to speak and the events themselves to speak in keeping with this whole tradition of the fathers of the church. So stretch, you know, maybe, but I think it, it depends in part the disposition that you bring to the sacred page. If you bring a kind of skeptical, kind of jaded, kind of worn out and worn down disposition, then it's all going to seem like a stretch. But if you, you know, come before the sacred page, not like a kind of naive, ingenuous, dopey, I'll believe everything type, but but with a genuine openness to what the Lord is proposing, revealing, and mediating, then yeah, doesn't seem like too much of a stretch to me. Yeah, and I don't think what St. Augustine is doing here is sort of imposing his own desires, images on the text of the scriptures. And I don't think if you were pressed, you know, by a sort of modern mind in the ways that you just described, that might be hypercritical of this sort of reading. I don't think you would say like, well, no, it's there. Like, obviously, this is about baptism. I think what he would say is more that there's a, like, it's not the literal sense, but as you were describing the allegorical sense, there's a sort of prefigurement and in the fullness of revelation in Christ and in, in the dispensation of the sacraments, we can see how the waters as they were created to bring forth life do so in a literal way, you know, with actual animals, but also in a spiritual way that we use the same creation or that the Lord has created the sacraments to use the same creation to bring about spiritual life too. So it's not as if he's saying, well, yeah, if you don't see baptism in this, this is obviously what this is about, then somehow you're misreading. But it, it helps, again, to see this sort of holistic, this whole reading of the scriptures. One thing that I like here too is that he mentions that if Adam had not sinned, then the sacraments wouldn't there would be no need for baptism. It reminds too of the of the Easter exaltet that we sing at the Easter vigil each year. Oh, necessary sin of Adam! Oh, happy fault! Not that sin is good, but that you know through our fault, through our sin, through our brokenness, there is real grace and redemption offered in Christ. So there's I don't know. I found that connection to be pretty cool. Yeah, no, I think it's this whole idea that the sacraments are part of a post-fall world, or sometimes you've heard the word post-lapsarian. We may have even said that in the uh, in the podcast. 
uh, is is kind of challenging to our understanding of what it means for something to be good. Because usually we think of those things are good, which are untainted, which are stainless, which are pure, which have never experienced anything of defilement, right? But that's just our Christian understanding is downstream of, I mean, sacred history. So our, our first parents sinned and we are in you know, like kind of find ourselves surrounded by the devastation wrought by that sin or the fallout of that sin. And yet we can still save it that it's good, right? Because the Lord has invested it with his sacred presence. And because with the institution of the church and the sacraments, he makes sacred history a place in which we can come to discover him and grow in his grace in life. So, boom. Yeah. And here too, in these, if if we move from Genesis 120 to 124, that recounts the creation of the earth, St. Augustine begins to talk about the Eucharist here, um, and, and the connection is is that baptism is for those who have yet to be baptized, for the not the faithful, you know, those yet to be Christians, and then the Eucharist is food for Christians, so it comes after, and it's food for those who believe. So baptism here made a little more sense from the waters. I guess the creation of the earth, of earthly things, and then, you know, the Eucharist as food makes sense. It was a little, in my mind, not a stretch, but a little more difficult to see the allegorical imagery here but yeah i think it's it's of a piece so i don't know i don't say that to sort of as a criticism of augustine but just as a a sort of we're you know we're talking is this a stretch this sort of thing i don't think it's a stretch but um at least in my reading and understanding the the creation of the waters and baptism seemed a little closer in in mind i don't know if you had that same pickup father gregory or if i'm just a bad reader yeah i'm i don't i don't stand in judgment over your interpretations but uh, certainly, like Genesis 1 is often described by the fathers of the church and by medieval theologians as a series of three days followed by a series of three days followed by a day of rest. And in the first three days, you have the divisions, right? So the division from the light and the darkness, the division from the like what is above and below the firmament, like the division of the waters, and then the division of the earth, and then the water below the firmament. And then the subsequent three days, you know, four, five, six, is the kind of decoration or adornment of those spaces which have been carved out or divided. And so you have the adornment of the heavens, right, with the sun and the moon and the stars, and then you have the adornment of the sea with the fish, like what which we just heard uh, on the fifth day, and then the adornment of the earth, you know, with first animals and then men, uh, which is, you know, constitutes the sixth and final day of creation, followed by the seventh and kind of ultimate day of rest. And so I think that the purpose of adornment in each case is that it be crowned by its highest realization. And its highest realization is, I mean, the incarnate Lord in a certain sense, insofar as he draws all things together in himself, and he, you know, he visits the earth with that material reality, which is assumed human nature. But we see like, you know, St. Augustine is doing some work here to divide between the place of the waters and then the place of the earth. And I think that the, the Eucharist is the greatest fruit of the earth in the sense that it's from grains, it's from grapes, which are you know baked, which are crushed and fermented, uh, which then become apt matter for the Eucharistic change for transubstantiation, which makes of them the body and blood of Christ. So I think that, again, we talked about this in a past episode, that, that everything has a kind of tendency in God's providence. God is drawing all things you know, together in himself. Uh, I'm thinking of a title of a Flannery O'Connor short story, which is called Everything That Rises Must Converge. And and for whatever reason, I, I like that image. I think she took it from a 20th century theologian. But uh, this image that 
There's a tendency, there's a movement. All of creation strains towards its limit, and at its limit, our Lord takes it to himself and is able to transpose it or transform it into something yet more glorious. And that's the hope for our own lives, right? That we strain towards the limits of our nature by God's grace, by God's assistance, but ultimately that we go beyond them, that we touch something of the very divine. And so the Christian tradition will speak of deification or divinization along those lines. Well, there you have it. Here at the end, just one final note that'll lead us into tomorrow's episode. Here at the end of these chapters, Augustine speaks about this renewal. You know, so he started with a reminder, a synopsis of conversion, um, about the sacramental life coming forth as the highest points or parts of creation that are given to us. And Augustine speaks about renewal, regeneration, our renewal, our regeneration and grace that we're made new to be more and more in the image of the image of God, of knowing and loving of being. So this is, again, kind of the point of what's happening, the point of our conversion to be conformed to him. So it's a good place to leave, a good thing to meditate upon, and a good thing to give thanks for. So we'll do that. But in the meantime, know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us. And we'll catch you next time on Catholic Classics.